Well, hello and happy St. Patrick's Day. Thanks so much for joining me here at Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I am very excited to introduce my special guest to you. She was the first uh, interviewee that I had on the show, and so I'm excited to have her back on. Her name is Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Dr. Pryor, how are you doing today, ma'am? I'm doing wonderful. I didn't realize that I was the first one way back then. You so were, like, yeah, way oh. back when. It seems like a long time ago. It was really only about a year or a little bit more ago. But uh, yeah, I was just getting started in here on the YouTube land and the podcast land. And uh, you were my first interviewee. And then we followed that up with Jay Warner Wallace. And then things just kind of took off from there. So uh, it's been going very well. But I, uh, uh, as I was saying before we uh, got started here, Last time you were on, I was getting over a sickness and sounded like crud, and you had just got hit by a bus, literally, and so I'm glad we're both uh, in better health now. <laughs> um, but uh, for those who may not be familiar with who you are who di or who didn't get to see the first episode, I thought it might be helpful uh, if you gave uh, a brief introduction about who you are and kind of what you do. Sure. Um, well, I am primarily an English professor at Liberty University, where I've been teaching for 21 years. Um, I'm finishing up my last year this year and then taking a, a post beginning with the uh, academic year in the fall uh, as a research professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I'll continue teaching English there and some cultural, uh, some courses on cultures and Christianity. Uh, and so that will be a big shift for me, um, but it will bring together other things I've been doing in my life in recent years, which includes um, writing books and articles on literature, culture, politics, and um, things that affect the church, particularly my denomination of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, and congratulations on the new job, by the way. That must be very exciting. Um, so are you looking forward to that and what exactly does a research professor do and how's that differ from what you've been doing? Yeah, I am very much looking forward to it. It's very exciting. Um, I'm a person who doesn't like change, so it's actually kind of a personal challenge, but, um, that's good. It's good to be challenged and, uh, to, to adjust. Um, and so the research pos professor post is different in that it has a lighter teaching load, um, in order to allow me more time to write and speak and research, as the title suggests. So um, instead of teaching four classes a semester, as I do now, I'll generally be teaching two, and that will give me more time to um, to do the public, um, you know, fulfill that public role of speaking and writing. Yeah. Well, the last time you were on, we were discussing your book on reading, and as an excellent book, I'll probably leave a link in the description for those uh, who haven't read it yet to go get a copy. It's an excellent book that you should read. Um, but uh, just on the subject of books, what what books are you current, currently reading? Well, at the moment, because I'm on spring break, I, I picked up a novel that is just one I've been wanting to read for a long time, and it's not for a class or for anything I'm writing about, and it's Wendell Berry's novel, Hannah Coulter, um, and I'm really delighting in that. Um, and of course, I just uh, just recently had the release of two classic works um, that uh, I love and that I wrote introductions and reflection questions for, and those are Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So I spent a lot of time immersed in those books over the past year in order to um, you know, to reprint these editions with with my notes and introductions. Yeah, are you getting uh, a, are you getting an extra spring break right now as well? <laughs> well, we are getting 
our one week of spring break. And then when it's over this week, we will resume our classes online, which okay. will be a big challenge for most of us, especially me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is nice that we have that luxury, but it, yeah, it can also mm-hmm. be a challenge as well. Um, so the, the, whenever I had you on last time, I confess that I don't read a lot of fiction or a lot of literature. I'm kind of a nonfiction person. I'm, I'm reading like five to ten nonfiction books at one time at all times, just kind of going back and forth. That's just kind of how my brain works. Um, but you did um, talk me into reading. I saw the benefit of needing to read some more fiction and literature, so I've been trying to do that. It kind of comes in spurts. If I find myself digging too deep into uh, a nonfiction area, I, I go, I think I need a break for this for a little while, and I go read some fiction. But I'm, I'm interested in wondering if you do anything like that with nonfiction. I know you read a lot of literature and, and fiction for your I mean, it's kind of your job to, um, but do you do you read a lot of nonfiction? Oh, I do read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I actually, I, that's where the the culture part of my uh, the new title comes in. Um, I also, in the past year, co-edited a book with a colleague, Josh Shatrow, on um, cultural engagement. Uh, and so I do read widely in theology and philosophy and cultural analysis. Um, that's, you know, I, I love being informed and reading those things, uh, but my, you know, it's just a delight to me to read great literature. But I, I need to ask you: so, of the of the fiction works that you've read in the past year or so um, since we spoke, which one, which one did you appreciate and enjoy the most? Oh man, this is I knew I knew that you were going to turn around and ask a question <laughs> like that, and I should have been prepared. Um, I did read uh, Charles Dickens. Um, a Tale of Two Cities. Please tell me I got that correct. He did write you, a Tale you, of Two Cities. Yes, d- yes, you, I, you read it. And what did you think? Uh, I did. I did it. I enjoyed it. It was a good book. Um, I also, um, I didn't finish the book. I cheated and went and watched the movie about halfway through and watched uh, Silence. Um, oh, okay. And what did you think of that? I mean, the, the film adaptation is quite, is pretty faithful and quite good. Yes. Um, so that's, so, that's a... An acceptable cheating. <laughs> yeah, the film was excellent. I thought. I thought it was very good. It it did it caused me to think about a lot of things actually, and um, kind of reconsider, kind of how you view things. You think, you know, what if I was in that situation? How mm-hmm. would that, how would that go? But just because I am a person of faith, a Christian as well, obviously. Um, but um, so I I tend to think like that when I see things like that. It's like, well, what would I do if I was, mm. found myself in that situation? It's hard to tell. I mean, everybody wants to be the hero that doesn't mm-hmm. recount their faith or doesn't compromise. But then, you know, it's like if somebody else's life is on the line, like you see in the right. movie, it's not just about me. It's also about them. Like, what would I do? I don't I have no idea. But yeah, it was a very, mm. uh, very good film. And uh, I did enjoy uh, The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. But. Oh, good. Well, I, I feel very successful now just hearing that you read those two works and, and some others. So great. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I mean, I am enjoying it. And I, I want to read some more. Uh, but um uh, my nonfiction regimen is just so intensive that I got to find time to do that. But uh, so we we do find ourselves in another election year, and so um, um, I, I think I first became familiar with <clears throat> who you are and your work. Um, actually, this is false. That's not true. I was going to say during the 2016 election, but I first became familiar with who you were because uh, I believe uh, another uh, Eric Eric Metaxas mentioned your work in one of his works, and that's I was like, oh, I want to go read that because mm-hmm. I like the the uh, 18th century as well and, and so he mentioned um, y- your your book on uh, 
Hannah Moore. Sorry, I almost mm-hmm. forgot the name. And so I went and read that book as well. But I became very familiar with you during the 2016 election. Um, you, um, I think it's fair to say, were critical of, of Trump and things like that. And so I, it, I felt like it was a voice that was well needed on the evangelical conservative Christian side to get another perspective like that. It's often very binary. Um, mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Were you critical of Trump in the 2016 election? I, I was then and remain so today. Yes. So, yes. Okay. So that was going to be my question is, are we, are we in, in 2020, are you pretty much going to have the same approach as in 2016? Yeah, that, that's, that is a good question. It's a fair question. Um, I, I um, still have the same concerns that I had about Trump in 2016, which were about his character. Um, and, and not in the sense of, you know, people will often say, well, we're all sinners, no one's perfect. And, um, you know, someone who has a, a bad character that doesn't disqualify them for, uh, a presidential office. Um, we've certainly had plenty of bad characters, um, in that office, but it's really not, it's not just about being a flawed person or a sinful person as we all are. It's about having the kind of, um, character flaws that make you a very bad leader. Um, and so I think that, you know, name calling and disrespect and being ill-informed or even, you know, contradicting yourself and your daily messaging, that sort of thing is, you know, I think that makes for a bad leader. Um, I will say that, um, that, one concern that I had in 2016 that I don't have anymore is that I didn't necessarily believe that Trump would keep his word on a number of policy promises. And he certainly, to his credit, has kept his word on his, you know, his court appointments um, on religious freedom and and, uh, standing for the pro-life cause. And so he surprised me in that respect. And I'm I'm thankful for that. Um, But again, uh, there are enough... uh, enough problems I have with his leadership in general that uh, I think are reflections of his character um, that, you know, I would not be able in good conscience to vote for him this time around, even though I understand that, you know, there aren't very many good candidates at all. And (laughs) that's true. We can agree on that for sure. Yeah. And it's and and so I I certainly don't um, don't judge anyone for, you know, for voting for him when it comes down to it, because we really are in a difficult uh, position. I just happen to believe that if we compromise less over the years in our voting, we would ultimately have better candidates. Um, And that's a long-term strategy. And I I get that a lot of people, um, you know, are, are more concerned about the short term. Mm, yeah, good point. And, and again, uh, uh, this is exactly the message I was kind of hearing from you in 2016. And I thought, wow, that's a well-balanced. And uh, I, I very much appreciate that voice. I, I do actually come down on the side that, and I've already said this before, that I probably will vote for Trump in 2020, just like I did in 2016. Um, but I share the same concerns and everything like that. It's just interesting how we can pretty much uh, agree on it, all the facts of the matter. And then when it comes mm-hmm. to decision time, we come to different decisions because I pretty much agree 100% with your analysis. And then, like you said, um, you kind of take into consideration that long-term 
uh, versus short term, and I think that's kind of where uh, people have to make their decision. Um, but I am interested to uh, hear uh, your response to this. You're kind of just touching on it right there with the short term versus long term. Um, but what is your criticism of the position that uh, uh, Grant, everything you just said, except given the choice between Trump and the Democrats that are running, I'm going with Trump every time. What is kind of your criticism of uh, that position? Because I think that really is the modest position that most um, uh, Trump uh, conservative evangelicals who support Trump, I think that is the the mm-hmm. position that they take, which is, yeah, all your criticisms are correct. However, it's either him or the Democrats, so I'm going with him. How do you mm. kind of re- answer uh, that position? mentioned earlier um, in the conversation about the problem, you know, you mentioned the binary and we do think, tend to think in, in um, binary categories, not only in the two party system in America, but even just as part of um, being uh, citizens of the modern age. I mean, the modernity is really defined in large part by uh, the binaries that have brought us to this point um and oftentimes we see those binaries as conflicts like the con uh, they're not real but we we think of for example faith and reason being in conflict and we think of you know uh male and female being in conflict and black and white being in conflict we often don't um we're just it's just part of our culture to think of either or rather than both and um and for me i mean I have some bare minimum qualifications for someone before I would vote for them. One is, of course, that they have to um, be willing to protect the most vulnerable among us, um, and that includes unborn children. So someone who does not do that is not someone who would get my vote. Um, And so that uh, doesn't eliminate Trump, but it eliminates all of the Democratic candidates. So uh, because but because Trump doesn't meet um, Another bare minimum qualification, such as not bragging about sexually assaulting women, um, then I can't vote for him either. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, so I, I will just look for a, a good third party candidate. There are usually I have not been in uh, a citizen in an election where there wasn't an acceptable third party candidate that I could either vote for or write in. And again, I understand many people think that's throwing the vote away. I think that compromising is throwing our country away in the long term. And that's how we got Trump. So (laughs) that's a good response because I do. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I do view a third party vote that way. Uh, I don't think I would word it as you're, you know, throwing it away or I might, but uh, I just, I see it as pretty ineffective, and I get the argument that you're making, and it makes perfect sense to me. Um, it, it, I don't know. It just kind of seems almost like uh, too impractical, almost too high and lofty. For me, personally, just speaking, mm-hmm. that, yeah, I wish that the world were that way and that I could mm-hmm. just say, you know, I'm not going to budge. Um, mm-hmm. Give me somebody better or you're not getting my vote. That's pretty much what you're <laughs> saying, right? Right. Yeah, it is. And it and makes it, sense. It, it's like, I'm not right. going to cater to you. You're going to... We're not, <laughs> if if everybody would just do what I'm doing, we might get better candidates. Right, and right. that makes sense. You're you're correct. I just it just takes longer, very a long long time. Yeah, like generations perhaps, and I think that we are uh-huh. seeing the the fruit of generations of compromise in the political uh-huh. system. So, mm-hmm. and um, I guess the fear of on my side or or the people that might view things the way I do is, it I agree it would take generations for that to happen, and but the the potential for 
things to go the wayside in between there are just far too too great that a lot of people just w- wouldn't be willing to risk taking the long term uh, right p- position there maybe I do understand I I do understand that and that's it's just we're in a it's just tough and that's why I think it's a weird you know, place it's a weird place is, to be it is and our conscience has to has to play a play a great role yeah. um and I also respect people who vote um you know for uh, these far less than perfect candidates um sort of reluctantly in a in a way that I don't those who are so willing to overlook um mm-hmm. the severe yeah, um, absolutely. Problems, um, yeah. It was very difficult for me for the exact reason that you mentioned, the the, the braggadocious nature towards um, sexual assault, or at least speaking in, in such a manner. Um, I have four sisters raised by my mom. I, I have a wife. We're having our first daughter. Like, that uh, concern. Oh, congratulations. Concerns. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yes, yes. My mm-hmm. wife is pregnant with her first child, and it's a girl. So, I mean, I obviously don't want to hear somebody talking like that, let alone the president of the United States. <laughs> uh, so it was extremely difficult to do. Um, but uh, what are some uh, general principles that uh, Christians should incorporate in their decision for voting? Well, as I just described, I think that it's helpful to have sort of a list of, of bare minimum qualifications. Um, and, and and those are, for me, those are policy related. Uh, some people will, will, co- will say things like, oh, we're not voting for a pastor, we're voting for a president. And yeah, I, I actually agree with that. I don't think that a president has to be a person that I would want for leadership in my church or um that's but but I still think that the, the the basic character requirements that we could have of a decent human being are ones that we should require of, of our leaders. Um, and so I think, you know, you we just have a list of, of things that, that qualify a person. Um, and uh, and I, I hope for Christians, those include, you know, the big dignity and value of human life. Um, that's to me. Um, a non-negotiable. There are other things, um, policy differences that we can have where we might agree on the same goal, but just disagree on how to get there. Um, you know, so that that's actually one of the reasons why I, you know, don't think I would ever vote for a Democrat because there are so many policies that they support that I think um, end up, you know, th- they they may be trying to reach the goal, a goal that I share, but I think they end up not getting there in the long run. Again, it's more of a, a long term. Yeah. Um, and so I just think that we need to um, have those qualifications, but also realize that we are a witness. And in a way that previous generations of Christians in this country have not been, we now have all these polls and surveys and the word evangelical has been tainted in a way because, um, because of the pollsters and, and the surveys and the way that people respond to them without even necessarily understanding the term. And we've been, we've been defined in a way that I think doesn't reflect who we really are. And so, um, there's a witness that we have that's at stake too. Um, and so I think that's an important thing to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you think um, that the, and I think you already touched on it a little bit, but do you think the Trump presidency has done good for the pro-life movement? And what good things have you seen for the pro-life movement uh, here recently? Well, I'm, I'm certainly thankful for the court appointments that he has made. Um, 
not only for the pro-life movement, but simply for um, what I believe are the kinds of rulings that best protect the Constitution um, over the long haul. Um, conservative judges just tend to um, to rule on on cases that uphold the Constitution in a in a strict constructionist way rather than a, a an activist way, um, and I think that's important. Yet we haven't seen any cases yet um where we certainly haven't come close to seeing roe versus wade overruled we have some states that have passed legislation it's just simply going to take a long time and we also have to look at back at history and recognize that judges that were um considered conservative or appointed by conservative presidents haven't always ruled the way that conservatives would want them to um so there there are no guarantees and so even though I do want to see pro-life legislation enacted, um, not only at the federal level, level but across the country at every level, um, ultimately, politics, as a politician once said long ago, is, uh, is downstream of culture. Yeah. And so we really, if we want those laws to change in a way that is holistic and healthy and life-affirming, then we have to change the culture because some, you know, it, we could a dictator could come along and outlaw abortion. That's true. Um, and that, but that would not be, you know, a way that we would want that to happen. Um, just as we wouldn't want a dictator to, uh, to, to allow all Baptists freedom of worship, but no one else or something like that. I mean, yeah. we have to be careful what we wish for in the sense that, um, that a law by itself can is not going to be something that will protect life ultimately sure. if it's not in concert with other um, biblical values. Sure. So what are some uh, key strategies uh, as far as affecting the culture, maybe not necessarily like voting and um, uh, politics, but uh, focusing on strategies to affect the culture for the pro-life movement going forward? Well, this is where I really do look to the 18th century evangelicals that you mentioned before, Hannah Moore, um, whom I wrote a book about, and her fellow evangelicals like William Wilberforce. And again, we look we look across the pond at these evangelicals who work to not only abolish slavery in their lifetimes, but at the same time they were doing that, they were taking a multi-pronged holistic approach to reform in all of society from mm-hmm. high to low. And they largely succeeded in a way that affected every area of life. Whereas in America, we do tend to be you know, focused on single issues. We did abolish slavery, but it required a civil war. Um, and I think that the way that we abolish slavery with a war actually is the reason why we still continue to have huge problems with racial strife today. Um, Whereas, um, you know, it was just entirely different in England because they used an incremental method, um, chipping away at it and changing hearts and minds through popular culture, through poetry, through literature, through art. Um, and that's what we need to do. It's no, it, there is no one size fits all. We have to change all of society with every means at our disposal. And that means equipping and empowering Christians where they are um, to take that message and to promote that message. And that's why we can't bracket away a pro, you know, a so-called pro-life president who actually 
is part of the demand side of abortion by objectifying women and treating them disrespectfully because that's the kind of behavior that actually contributes to an abortion mentality. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Um, I don't know how to segue into the next question. We're both, <laughs> we're both dog lovers. We love dogs around here. Uh, how, many, how many dogs do you have? That's about as good as that one's going to get. I didn't know how to go from what you just said to my next question. No, uh, well, just, you know, <laughs> at least you provided a transition. I grade, I grade a lot of papers, and, and sometimes I'll, you know, say a good transition is hard to find. <laughs> it can be tough. but you It's a memorable transition, at yeah, least. Yeah, um, it is. So uh, um, we're both dog lovers. How many dogs do you have? What are their names? What kind of dogs are they? I have two dogs. One is a German short-haired pointer named Ruby, and the other is a Weimaraner named Eva. And two is our limit. We had three dogs in the past, but we just didn't like the way they they sort of devolved into pack uh, behavior with three. But with two are a delight because they love one another and play with one another, but they don't get overly jealous of one another. Um, and so that that's our those are our dogs. What about yours? Yeah, we have two as well. I'm going to tell my wife what you just said so she'll stop sending me pictures every day can we get this one can we we're gonna open because we just got a new house and I, we i put a fence up uh for the dogs to finally have a fence to go outside in a big backyard and she's like with this new backyard we can just have an animal shelter and i was like are you what are you talking about we have not getting any wow. more dogs you're, you're ambitious um we uh so she had a beagle um before we got married and then uh, while we were engaged, I must confess that I brought home a uh, miniature Australian Shepherd. And Aww. so that's Andy the Beagle and Arlo the Mini Aussie. And uh, they're best buds um, mm. most of the time. We had a period where the Aussie was growling and trying to fight the Beagle. And so every once in a while he still does it, but I think they're good now. Mm. I'm happy that we just gave them a, a great big backyard. Uh, I'm going to try and get a doggy door for them into the garage so they can kind of have a shelter in place so i'm happy that we're going to get to give them that i've been wanting to give them that for a while i do have a soft spot for animals mm -hmm. for all the listeners uh, especially the dogs um and i don't know um so i do christian apologetics and philosophy mostly um i love having uh, you on and, and and other people in the evangelical circles so i can kind of have a break from that and talk about other things um <laughs> and so that's just kind of where my mind naturally tends it, I don't know why I have this soft spot for dogs. I can't figure it out mm. rationally or ob or objectively. <laughs> I just feel that way. Like we eat animals and like, you know, dogs mm. are animals. But for some reason, I just want to treat dogs really well. But why is that? Mm. Is there an objective case for this, uh, Dr. Parr? Oh, wow. You, <laughs> this could be a whole show or two in itself. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I, and I, I love all animals. I'm a big animal lover, but, and I've had horses. I've been a horse person most of my life, although I don't you know, have any now. I just board a couple. Um, but dogs are just, I mean, I, I can't imagine life without dogs. Um, and I, you know, I wrote a piece a few years ago um, on the death of one of my dogs about just how hard it is when a dog dies. And it's actually one of my favorite pieces that I've ever written because what I wrote in the conclusion is and and this you know this applies to all pets but again dogs are dogs are more special they're they're more equal than <laughs> than the other animals on animal farm um by the way animal farm is a book you should read if you haven't read it, it you would love it um by george orwell i'll make a note uh, yes it's a political satire oh and it's, an it's by george orwell i believe i've yeah. read 1984 so I don't, okay I don't think you would I've love and you would love animal farm but 
Um, that, that was a line that some animals are more equal than others. Yeah. Um, but um, so what I wrote is, you know, it, it's it's an analogy. And so any discernment bloggers out there who want to seize this um, and take it out of context, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure they will. This is just simply an analogy. But the way that dogs depend on and love us, I think, in some ways reflects the way that we depend on and love God um, and that his the way that he cares for us because we're so much smaller than him and so much less, you know, we understand so much less um, and we depend on him and we love him because he loved us. That's really just a faint reflection. I think when we love dogs and that same, we're, we're like their God. Yeah. No, um, that's a perfect and, analogy. I get it. Oh, yeah. well, thank you. I think that's really <laughs> I, good I, because I wrote, it, I wrote it much better, but that's the, that was the gist of it. No, that yeah. definitely sounds good to me. It sounds like, Look, given the the choice, if you have anything or anyone who's weak and and Mm -hmm. in some sense weak and dependent upon you for survival or Mm -hmm. for basic necessities or something that like a dog, Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you you know, your moral obligation would be to, at the very least, not be a jerk to them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying you have to sacrifice your life to provide their necessities, but obviously, if you have that means. Um, I thought you were actually going to go that it, it resembles um, the analogy between a parent and a child is what I thought you were going to go with that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, yeah, but that's, that, too, that works but as well. It's basically the right, same concept. Though. Right, but, right. Uh, yeah, that's what the I thought distance, you were... The distance is so great like we and between us and animals, um, but and, and even more so between us and God, but there's, yeah, yeah, there's an yeah. analogy there. It's very, it's very powerful, I think. And by the way, and the other objective reason why dogs are so great now that you know the discernment bloggers can go nuts with it nuts with this but dog is god spelled backwards it is it is it is <laughs> it's it's man's best friend and it's yes. god spelled backwards so <laughs> yeah y'all can blog about that uh i got uh, one uh, last question for you dr Pryor, before we go to the bonus segment uh before we get to the last question of the interview i want to say thank you to all of our patron supporters for all, all of your support um it's because of your uh, support that I get to make uh, free content like this and put it out there on the internet to spread and defend the truth of Christianity. So thank you so much. Uh, if you want to become a supporter of the show or if you'd like to see the bonus segment with Dr. Pryor and not only that bonus segment but all of the bonus segments that we've had so far and will have in the future, you can just follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a, a patron supporter over there. Uh, Dr. Pryor, one last question before we go. What work of literature outside of scripture, and I mean like a classical work of literature, does everybody need to read? Well, that's such a hard question, but I'm going to say that I think, especially for Christians, everyone needs to read Jane Eyre. Um, And if you're not familiar with it and you just remember it from high school, you've heard of it, it is much, much more than a romance or a love story. It is really an allegory for a Christian soul finding her way um, in a culture that is, you know, that doesn't believe what she believes and, um, and she has to fight temptations to go against her beliefs uh, and she has to find her way um, to herself and her nature as someone made in God's image and it's just a powerful allegory of the Christian soul. And it's called Jane... What was Jane it? Eyre by... Oh, okay. 
Charlotte Bronte. Okay, there you go, folks. Uh, you heard it here first. Go get uh, that book as well as Dr. Pryor's book on reading. I'll leave a link in the description to that. Um, and again, if you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Dr. Karen Pryor, just follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter. Dr. Pryor, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me once again. Thank you.